We are underway. This is Glenn Lowry, The Glenn Show, Substack.com, and at YouTube. I'm with my bi-weekly conversation partner, John McWhorter, who teaches at Columbia. And we're joined uh, this week by Matt, Matt Taibbi, the uh, distinguished journalist and troublemaker. Hey there, Matt. How you doing? <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> I mean, Goldman Sachs is like a vampire squid on the face of humanity who's uh, <laughs> blood sucking uh, every, anywhere it smells money. I mean, it, didn't you write that sentence, Matt? <laughs> From what I heard, the, the Goldman guys found that funny. In <clears throat> fact, I, I heard the, the press, one of the press people actually got a... Uh, like a brass squid for his desk. Oh, oh yeah, of course. Uh, He's yeah. proud of it. <laughs> yeah, oh, no, no, exactly. wait. Here's, here's a better one. Max Boot is a gelatinous mediocrity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I thought that fit. But um, yeah, no, no argument here. No argument here. Anyway, Matt yeah. is a contributing editor at uh, at uh, Rolling Stone. Uh, he is uh, a publisher. No longer. No longer. No, no, I haven't been uh, with them for a year. Mm-hmm. Beg your pardon. Well, you are uh, the uh, publisher of TK News, which is a very mm-hmm. successful Substack, and, uh, you know, author of Hate, Inc. Uh, that's your re- most recent book. Uh, and uh, uh, as I say, troublemaker, because uh, we are in a period of uh, crisis here in American intellectual life, journalism, uh, you know, politics and so forth. And you're right on top of it. So I appreciate what you're doing. Likewise. Uh, oh, thanks. Thanks a lot. Appreciate <laughs> hearing that. Uh, and uh, you are also a veteran of uh, having spent some time in uh, Russia and in Central Asia, Mongolia, Uzbekistan. Yes. I read that you played professional basketball in Mongolia and Uzbekistan. I mean, now how many people can say that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, there was a period in uh, 1996. I was living in Moscow at the time, uh, working for the Moscow Times, and I play street basketball at the uh, at Moscow State University, which you've probably seen pictures of. It has that great big wedding cake. Uh, building a skyscraper, a uh, really cool place to play basketball. And I met a Mongolian um, a student who told me that they had a new league in his country called the NBA, the Mongolian Basketball Association. <laughs> they used, used NBA rules, had a 24-second shot clock. So um, I went in the next day and I quit and uh, my, my job at the paper and jumped in the Tiberian Railroad and uh, moved to Mongolia for a while till. Uh, so I played played a season in the NBA. In the it was NBA. known as the Mongolian Rodman. <laughs> yes. Are, are they any good? Now, what Mongol- did they speak on the team? Yeah. What language were they using? So that, that's an interesting question. So uh, the the younger generation in Mongolia spoke purely Mongolian. Uh, if you were, uh, let's say, older than twenty. In 1992, 91, you, you were probably a better Russian speaker, at least the Ulaanbaatar. Exactly. So I didn't speak Mongolian. I, 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 I only spoke Russian. So it was a little with some of my teammates. Um, yeah, but, they, they uh, didn't speak Russian anymore. Right. That's no, what I was thinking. A few of them did. Right. Uh, and my coach was a fluent speaker. Right. Um, but it was it was odd. You know, uh, it was a, but it was an interesting experience. Very interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's no way to know Mongolian. You know, it's just that's that <laughs> local. And so, 
Yeah, it's that's a, her. You know what's interesting is that Mongolians it's related to um, to three other languages in the world. One, one is Magyar, uh, or you know, or Hungarian, Hungarian. Estonian, and Finnish. Um, so that's I always thought that was very odd. It's a very hard language to learn. You know, Matt. Um, actually, most linguists don't think that anymore. What you're talking about is what I when I was a kid. I know this is getting far from what the show's supposed no, to be. It's about. all right. It's <laughs> all right. Finnish and Hungarian are called Uralic, and mm-hmm. there is no longer thought to be a significant relationship between Uralic and Altaic, which is what Mongolian is in. Really? Yeah, I learned Ural Altaic too, but nowadays that's considered wrong. But I know what you mean. Yeah. And Mongolian is quite different. Yes. Well, um, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah, it's hard. It's got. It's it's yeah. harder than you know. The you, the, the case, case system is difficult and all that. So. You learn, yeah. John. You learn Ural Altaic. I mean, I learned that there was a Ural Altaic family. You'd see on the inside cover of big dictionaries and encyclopedias, and that was supposed to be this family. But then it was decided that Uralic is by itself, and Altaic is another family, which is Turkish, Mongolian, Manch. And a lot of people don't even think Altaic is a family, but I frankly think it is. But it's not those languages aren't related to Ethnian and Finnish and Hungarian, but whatever. So, okay, cool. Well, learn something every day. (laughs) Moving on. Yeah. Matt, you've been reporting and uh, commenting about what's going on in the war uh, of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and so on. What's going on from your perspective? You know, I I don't know. I got this completely wrong. I had to do something that I, you know, done in a long time, which is sort of publicly apologize for a wrong call. I did not see this invasion coming. I'm still in touch with a lot of people back in Moscow, including a lot of people in the press, um, and see this coming either. And um, so it's very difficult to know what that whole decision of Putin's was all about. It. Uh, a lot of us who were early critics of in uh, 99, 98, 2000, when he was first coming to power, uh, the assumption about Putin was always that he he was completely amoral, but uh, but rational and dramatic, and that what he would what he was doing um, had a purpose behind it. And um, this is you know this is the first time where. I just couldn't see the angle from his perspective, even, um, you know, unless it's it's some kind of emotionally driven decision that has to do with the, the civil war uh, in the Donbass area that I that I don't understand, not having been there since then. Well, I mean, what, what do you what do you think? I mean, I think it's from the outside, it's very difficult to see the gains uh, by attacking Western Ukraine. Uh, and, you know, for all the heat that John uh, Mearsheimer has taken recently, I, I kind of agree with the assessment that it, that uh, Putin doesn't have designs on conquering and keeping the whole country. So uh, it's it, it's it's just uh, hard to see what what he's up to, uh, uh, you know, bombing Lvov places like that. It's you don't want to call someone insane as in mental balanced. It's not an economical analysis. Very few people are crazy. But in this case, you really do wonder whether he has become a little bit unhinged or mentally enfeebled. And I don't think the explanation that he's got a bunch of yes men quite explains it because the 
issue is what those people were saying to him and how simple it would have seemed, even if that's all he heard. And just the rationale behind this seems so shaky and so thoughtless that I just wonder, I wouldn't be surprised if this were kind of like, you know, what we learned about Ronald in a certain, you know, gradual decline. It makes no blessed sense whatsoever. Like, let's say that he black country down to the ground. Then he has to handle the country. You know, wh- why would he want a flattened Ukraine that he would have to get back up into functioning? Any human being understands that that's what he's doing. I don't get it. It's like he thinks he's in a play or something, but this isn't a play. Tell no, me, but sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Glenn, you had a question? Well, yeah, I, I was going to say Putin is just one man. And to discuss this issue as though he were an absolute dictator whose personality and psychology was driving events makes me a little uncomfortable. I'd like to know something more about the structure of power internal to the uh, to Russia and uh, and all of that. You know, I mean, it's he's it's not just him, is it? Well, the. He has a, a close military advisor and, uh, you know, there's, there's been a figure named Sergei who has kind of been with him uh, all, all those years and, and has been there dating back to the yellows. But I, I, there, there were um, a number of Russian reporters who commented uh, on a National Security Council meeting uh, that was held just a few days before the invasion. And they were all struck. I, the, the sort of look of surprise on all of their faces. Hmm. Um, there, there was one. Uh, I think it was a BBC based, but she, she's ethnically Russian uh, reporter who described uh, the members there as being like kids who had just been handed a surprise test uh, in class. And so there, any people who have sources within the Russian government, there are many. Um, even among the sort of Russian diaspora reports. But what they were getting is that it doesn't seem like anybody had any clues was coming. Uh, if you watch the POW videos, um, and, you know, obviously you can't trust everything that you're seeing uh, that from that's coming from the Ukraine side, but, but uh, it, does, it really does seem like the, the people who were sent initially, the, the, the frontline Russian groups were actually not, trained for this mission that that uh, they were told coming in for a three three to five day of exercise that they'd be home at the end of that um so uh, there are a lot of indications that uh not many people knew that this was coming yeah, no, the, um, the one thing that might make some sense of this is that perhaps putin and or people who convinced him to do this or helped convince him to do this aren't fully aware of the nature of modern communications and social media, because it can be easy to miss that sort of thing, even if you understand it intellectually. This would have made a certain sense 25 years ago when there was an awful lot they could have done behind the scenes. But with everybody having a phone where you can just see everything that they're doing, whatever they say, can't help thinking, how did they think they were going to get away with that kind of thing now? But then again, I don't know, in 2003, um, I was so behind in terms of understanding how important blogs were 
I let an article go out under my name that had been edited into complete shit, <laughs> thinking, oh, you know, I'd rather not rock the boat. I'll never write for this publication again. But, you know, frankly, a few people will read this and it'll go into the trash can. Know that now I was writing for online and that the article would chase me for the next 20 years. And I'm not that stupid. It's just that it takes me a few years to catch on to what everybody else is doing. Maybe. That oh, the way I'm referring to how hip hop holds blacks back for the record. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, I remember that one, John. That article is like five percent what I wrote or thought, but and literally, but maybe what's going on with Putin and his people, they don't quite understand what it means that everybody has a phone in their pocket now and that we can communicate so quickly and that it's hard to lie. That's the only thing that makes any sense to me about this. It's possible, I mean, and he he. Uh, came of age in the KGB at a time when secrecy secrets were much easier to keep. Mm-hmm. Uh, they had they they had a premium on them. He talks constantly. If you ever listen to Putin speak, he's he's always giving these pains to uh, the professionals, the professionals in the services, and and how how great they are at uh, at keeping things uh, their cards close to the vest. Yeah, it's possible that that maybe he thought that that he could pull a surprise uh, act and, and not have it be known, you know, by every tweeter in America five days ahead of time. I mean, it, it, he's not from this generation. Right. Um, it's it is possible. He also, you know, and, and I think this is a this is a part maybe I, I didn't think about enough. He has a a, a, a sadistic streak that comes out. Um, Fairly regularly and has been coming out more and more in the way he speaks. Uh, famously, you know, back in the day when he was talking about um, the Chechens, he gave, he, he held this sort of impromptu press conference where he said, um, you know, if, if they're in the outhouse, we'll whack them in the outhouse. Like, that's it. And, and, and you know, he made a wow. point of talking about using like gang language when he when he when he talked about uh, how he was going to go to war with people. So there's a I think there might be something where he's got an emotion uh, urge to shed some blood in, in Ukraine. And that might be behind this. That's that's come out of his personality many times. And we've seen it with his behavior towards journalists too. So, um, you know, that'd be another uh, explanation. I gather he gave a speech recently in which he denounced those Russians who were not uh, behind the war effort, uh, referring to him as insects or something to that effect. Yeah. Flies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now does he have absolute power? I mean, can he do anything that he wants? Are we really talking about a dictator here who can, you know, pretty much have I mean, a, fu- his enemies executed on demand? Or is there not a coterie of others who are supporting him? And also, what about the, you know, the man and woman on the street in uh, Moscow or, or Petersburg? Are, are they more or less pro-Putin than pro-Russia? Well, functionally speaking, the, the president uh, or, you know, had has had um, near absolute power going back to the early 90s, frankly. I mean, there have always been competing factions of influence uh, within Russian society. There was a there was a period in the mid 90s where it was more of an oligarchy than a dictator where you had um, 
competing gangland clans. They were, uh, it was like the Godfather. Instead of five families, there were seven families in Russia. Um, each one had its own sort of media empire. They had their own mineral and oil interests. Uh, but one of Putin's um, innovations when he came to power was was consolidating all those groups um, and forcing them to pledge loyalty to him and uh, expulsion of people like uh, uh, Misha Khartakovsky, who you've probably seen, uh, written and uh, talked about here in the States. He's the former president of UCOS. He did some prison time uh, in, in Russia. And there was another guy named Vladimir Gusinsky who was uh, who was dealt with way back when. So aren't like there aren't competing sort of political interests in the same way that there were once upon a time there. I think if he doesn't have absolute power, it's close to it uh, at this point. Hmm. So you got it wrong. I'm sorry, John. I was just saying it's scary because um, I don't see why he won't try to do this with some other countries. And I know that's original thought, but if this quote unquote works in Ukraine, my sense is he's not as angry at Belarus, but what about the, the, the Baltic nations? What, why not? I get the well, feeling NATO, that there's NATO a particular is why not. issue. But Ukraine is a particular issue, I mean, because of you know, the history and you know the geography. But you know, what what would be next? Well, I mean, I got this wrong before, so I, you know, I, I feel, I feel um, a, a little bit odd making any kind of prognostication about the future. But uh, I'm not even again. I'm not even certain that he really wants Ukraine. I, I, certainly, he wants the Crimea. Certainly, he wants Luhansk, and Donetsk, and Mariupol. Like he probably won't hold that eastern uh, that eastern area, which. Um, you know, I've been to legions there, you know, once upon a time, they were very, uh, I would say ethnically, culturally Russian, right? Um, whereas the city held right now, Lvov, on the other side of the, of the country, I mean, I needed a translator to work there. They, they, it's more like Poland than it is uh, Russia. Uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't see him going into the Baltics, um, but I didn't see this happening either. So, you know, who knows? But the the Russians, you know, they, they, they have the greatest record in terms of military success uh, in the last few decades. Ter terrible trouble with Chechnya, which is a much smaller uh, region. They ended up having to level the city of Grozny. Um, they took incredible losses when they thought they would be able to take it over in a couple of hours. Uh, and, you know, so, so it's, it's taken, um, a pretty big pull on, on their society, just, just to handle some pretty small regions, um, you know, Pazia, you know, and, uh, the Crimea wasn't so much of a problem, but, but certainly Chechnya, uh, that, whole, yeah, um, and, and now this, this, this whole fiasco, I think. Uh, it, it, it doesn't it's not a good look for their military. Yeah. And it's interesting, this whole Western issue, because it would almost make us sense if he tried to basically cut the country in half and take the quote unquote, Russified side. That would be a hideous thing. But 
still would make a certain sense. But I've been surprised to see him going off into the Western part, you know, the more Ukrainian part of, of Ukraine, as if he just has to show it has to be the whole country rather than the parts where any remote sense at all to suppose that they could be part of Russia, although it didn't. So, yeah, there's an issue of the gesture here, and it seems to be irrespective of what the army is actually capable of doing or once again, it's like he's writing a book rather than dealing with the real world. And that's the cruelty of this. You know, he's, he's sending people to their deaths on the basis of this grandeur of reuniting the real Russia. This is something people do in plays. It's, it's just so unintuitive to me that this is actually happening. Well, he's, he's, he's got a tremendous uh, feeling of sentimentality about the Soviet Union, not about the ideology, but about the uh, imperial strength of it. He talks about it constantly. He talked about it back then when I was still there. I mean, the, he, he, it was his idea to restore the old Soviet national anthem. Um, he's talked about how a person, no person with a heart doesn't miss the Soviet Union. No person with a brain thinks it could come back. I forget what the actual translation is there, but the... Um, yeah, he, he does. He does have a little bit of a mystical side, and maybe maybe that's what this is all about. But again, that's just not that's not his history. His history has been that he's he's a super ruthless, pragmatic, um, and this is this seems to me like it's a little bit out of character for him to make this move. Now, if he had occupied the eastern territories. Uh, and kind of dared the West to do something with it, that would have been perfectly in character. Like, I, that, that's what that, most that's of us... Crimea. Crimea. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. But um, but this is different. You know, it, um, this is it's hard for people like us to get this because you don't feel that way as an American. Our sense of what America is is less tribal than that. In trying to put myself in bed, I'm trying to imagine how he feels about the nature of Russia, the nature of the Soviet Union, the sentiment attached to that. We, the American experiment is such, God, that sounds pretentious. The American experiment is such. We'll forgive that, you, John. Um, Go ahead. Wave what? the flag just oh, a little bit. Yeah. The American experiment <laughs> is such, cat, all right, that um, we don't have that native sense. You know, we can pretend, oh, USA and, you know, some stuffed thing with a big finger and hot dogs and stuff like that. But we don't feel that way. We're all too different. Is this, I'm, I'm trying to imagine how people feel about being black, how people feel about being Estonian, how people feel about being Latino, um, maybe how some people are forcing themselves to feel about being white with a capital W. That's the closest that we can get to this, but uh, I can kind of understand how we might- Let me try this, this on you, John. Tribal feeling. So we're worried, some of us, about the rise of China. Uh, America's a great power, is the great power. It's the global hegemon, but the Chinese are coming. Uh, there are two billion of them. They're really smart. Their economy is growing fast, et cetera, et cetera. Imagine, fast forward 20 years or 30 years, we're challenged in Taiwan and we back down. The Chinese influence throughout East Asia grows and grows. The Japanese, the Koreans have to find their peace with China. And we're feeling ourselves displaced as a world power. Is that anything like what a nationalistic Russian might feel at the collapse of the Soviet Union and the displacement of the Soviet Union, uh, a world power 
by uh, a Russia, a failing state with a declining population and eviscerated economy uh, and a humiliated Afghanistan uh, experience and so forth and so on. Can we put ourselves in the shoes of a nationalistic Russian today by imagining what it might feel like to see ourselves being eased off the center stage of world affairs by the Chinese 30 or 40 years from now? Yeah, I, I, I think that's, that's probably accurate. I mean, um, we want to think of it in terms of like what, what was the American sentiment during the Cuban Missile Crisis? That's that's kind of more how I think the the Russian may view this situation. Like whether whatever you think about the Monroe Doctrine or yeah. um, this idea that we have to have primacy over a sphere of influence, and I know that that's practically a taboo subject and um, in in the media now. But that's that's how a lot of Russians think about this situation. Uh, they they don't like the idea of. Uh, NATO creeping closer to their borders. The you know the story about Edward uh, Shevardnadze and James Baker negotiating of uh, communism and Baker promising that we wouldn't take one step towards the Soviet border. Like that's a story that every Russian, and I'm not even talking ethnically Russian. Everybody who lived in his nose. Um, and it's a story that nobody here knows, uh, and they're very sensitive about this stuff. And people who um, are very Western leaning, uh, like the people I went to school with in in the '90s, kids who spoke English who ended up living in the West. I mean, I remember one friend of mine looking at an old map of the Soviet Union uh, and saying, "Oh my God, what a big, beautiful country that was," you know, and. That still exists among people who were sort of virulently anti-communist. And so there's a lot of conflicted feelings among Russians about this whole thing. And the idea of NATO being this close in Ukraine, um, it, it's going to rub, you know, uh, the, the, especially the sort of nationalist types in the country uh, the wrong way, you know, and... So that's not to that's not to say that this is in any way justified. I'm just saying that that's the sentiment in the country. In some ways, I always envy it. Not here, but that sense that you belong to a tribe of people, you historical sentiments and grievances. And I know people are thinking, why doesn't he feel that way about being black? And yes, I admit that an awful lot of what unites many Black Americans in the sense of the grievance against whites, et cetera, is something I prefer not to think about as much as a lot of them do, because it's not the basis of an identity. I prefer to have a positive one. No, that doesn't mean that I don't think myself as Black, but that tribal sentiment, I've never had it the way I feel like I'm supposed, and it can lead you to do wonderful things. It can lead you to do some really stupid shit, and I guess that's what we're seeing seeing here. Wow. Well, my yeah, question, maybe, John, I mean... Mm -hmm. No, I was just going to ask, John, why don't you feel that way about being an American? I mean, black is pretty thin. You know, I did after 9-11 and was told by, you know, my blue America friends that that was wrong and that I had you know, lost my way in some way. But I did feel I felt very American after 9-11. I was very angry for a good few years based on that. Lost some friends, actually. So, yeah, I did then. I got I got to sit. But America's complicated. And we're all complicated. Hmm. It's interesting. Yeah. And, and also, 
in the internet age, you have to remember this this whole affair that's been going on in the Donbass for years now. So what's been happening in both of those countries, the Ukrainians are looking at all the videos of the atrocities Russians commit, and Russians are looking at all the videos of the atrocities Ukrainians commit. And it's awful stuff. It's it's out there. If you want to look for it, you can find it. Um, you're inclined to get uh, whipped up into a nationalist fervor. There's plenty of things to look at uh, on the internet that uh, will will get Russians there quickly. Um, the a lot of the stuff, but that involves like the Azov Battalion. Um, you know, even friends of mine who again who are extremely liberal, who are you know deep critics of Putin, muckraking journalists who took him on back in the day. Um, they were pushing back with me a little bit when I emailed them about this stuff in the last couple of weeks uh, and saying, you know, these Ukrainians did this and that. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's a complicated situation for sure. Yeah, my my girlfriend is Russian and she was showing me the kind of media that the typical Russian is exposed to. And it was it was fascinating just to see the, the creative sense of what the truth is. And yet you can certainly understand how the ordinary Russian is processing these things. I completely, I completely get that. It's the people higher up, you know, who have, you know, so to speak, a, a broader view of this where one gets confused. But yeah, from what the ordinary person sees when they go online, I get how it would look like all of this made sense. Yeah, that's the nature of modern media, too, that you can do that better than you did before. Okay, yeah, you, guys, you build build your own experience. Yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I just want to ask, am I the only one looking back at Russiagate, which uh, you, Matt, have called the WMD of our generation, at how stupid and disconnected from reality that whole uh, moral panic looks now that we're confronted with the geopolitical implications of Russian power being projected into Ukraine? I mean, uh, did we have our heads up our butt about Russia for uh, uh, a, a bit of time or or what? I mean, your one of your recent posts, uh, Matt, is Orwell was right. And uh, I read between the lines there a little bit that you were saying, uh, you know, we got our own thought policing and we've got our own double speak going on, new speak going on right here. And I think Russia is a big part of that. No. Yeah, I mean, I think the big point I was trying to make there was that this this new style of media that that we have now. And you know, you're both academics. I, I've, I've been in the media business for 30 years and um, our way of doing things has shifted radically in the last six or seven years uh, where the goal is to get the audience whipped into a fervor about something and keep them there, uh, as opposed to the old Walter Cronkite method where, you know, you, you sort of calmly read the news and then tell people they can come back tomorrow. Now you want them freaked out, panicked. And then at the end of the show, uh, Rachel hands off to Lawrence O'Donnell and then Lawrence O'Donnell hands off. To, like the idea is to keep them up constantly uh, scrolling and we've gone through panic after panic after panic in the last six or seven years. You know, everything from Russiagate to Kavanaugh to Bountygate to, uh, you know, the pandemic of the unvaccinated to the insurrection. You know, some of them are more real than others. But I think the cumulative impact of that uh, is that we're creating a kind of media consumer that doesn't remember things very well because they're always so 
in the moment. And this was this was what Orwell was writing about in 1984, the, like the the primacy of the present, like where that where the, whatever's true right now was always true, uh, and it doesn't matter what what happened back in the day. And I, and I think we've we've been very successful at building that kind of consumer um, that is incapable is capable of forgetting about all kinds of things uh, really quickly. And in this case, you know, it could be our history and uh, in Iraq, like you see people saying things like, well, how could you invade a sovereign nation or that's never happened in 80 years? Like, <laughs> like, like really? <laughs> you know, I mean, so that's that's all I was trying to write about in that piece. Matt, would you say, and I, I know this could go many ways, would you say that America learned from Iraq and Afghanistan, which are now essentially 20 years ago, because my feeling has been, yes, we're sitting here saying, how can you possibly invade another country? And it was 10 minutes ago that we, you know, we did the same thing for different reasons, but still we did that and it was a complete disaster. And most people wish we hadn't. My sense of it is that it wouldn't happen now, but maybe I'm being naive. I think Trump would have done something like that, but Trump is an idiot in general. A person running this country would be unlikely to repeat an Iraq kind of experience today. Would you agree with that? Or do you think that we would do it all over again, given you know, a certain combination of factors? I think it would be I think you're, it's, a, it's a good observation that you make. I think it would be harder now because of the Internet. Um, back in 2003, uh, basically, it was blanket coverage where everybody was saying the same thing. Um, we rallied the entire uh, public behind an invasion of uh, a country that made absolutely no sense, uh, had no connection whatsoever to 9-11. Uh, and yet we got most of the population behind it. And that was because there was such tremendous control over who spoke on the media. And that was most of what you saw. I mean, I remember fair.org did an analysis talking about the guests on all the cable shows, both in right right wing and MSNBC and uh, CNN. And it was something like 200 and something generals versus one anti-war voice uh, over the course of the six months preceding uh, the invasion. But you wouldn't have that now. It's 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 harder to have, um, you know, the sort of monomaniacal uh, media thrust that, that we had back then. Um, Obviously, Afghanistan, there was no problem convincing the public to go in uh, after 9-11. I mean, there was there were obviously there were pockets of people who were against the war and there were there was a significant portion of the population that that protested in uh, before the Iraq invasion. But um, yeah, I mean, we watched uh, Biden's uh, State of the Union address just recently. And one of the first things he stressed is we're not sending troops to that area. Obviously, this is. It's a nuclear power on the other side, so there's a different um, vibe with with this conflict. But um, but I think you're right. I think it would be harder now to do than it was back then. But I want you to address my Russiagate observation. I mean, <laughs> John says Trump was an idiot. Let me stipulate that Trump's an idiot. But the anti-Trump Russiagate motivated uh, uh, takedown attempts were built on sand. They they were false. It, it was a it was a moral panic. And I'm wondering whether or not it impeded our capacity to see what has now developed into a Russian attack in Ukraine and whether or not possibilities of mitigating that 
by seeing Russia as a power that needed to be dealt with in a subtle way, were missed through the fog of Russiagate uh, stealing our elections, uh, Trump is a Putin puppet, et cetera. And uh, you know, please be, you know, take that up, Matt. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I've obviously been pretty outspoken about this. I, I looked at it mostly from the media angle. Um, I think Russiagate was an embarrassing episode in the history of American media, because mainly because of our propensity uh, for reporting unsourced uh, or uh, stories that were sourced to anonymous intelligence sources where we can't see the proof of things. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, somebody might be told, well, the intelligence agents think that Carter Page is a um, an agent of a foreign power or the FISA court is reporting that uh, this Trump aide is a, you know, has, has had secret meetings with Russian intelligence officials, but we can't tell you how we know that or why we know that. And as reporters, we're not supposed to just dump that out there on the front page. Like we're, we're supposed to cross uh, confirm that somehow. And there were years of stories where we didn't do that because I think there was a, there was a, belief among some reporters that the story was true. And then there were uh, other people who just were incautious, you know, and yeah, I think, I think you, you make a good observation that um, did this cartoonized version of what Russia was and what they were capable of um, may have obscured our ability to analyze what was actually going on in the country. Uh, certainly, you know, in 2000 and, 12 when Barack Obama was running against Mitt Romney. And uh, he, I, I think the quote was the, he called Russia a gnat on the butt of an elephant. Um, it, you know, that, that was, uh, I think that was probably closer to, to the reality of what Russia was, where we depicted them as this all powerful, um, you know, sort of Yago-esque, uh, international figure that that could reach into the American electoral system and change results. Um, I don't think that was true at all. I think it's a it's a, a nation that's got a lot of economic troubles, and um, it, you know the one thing that it has is is a strong military, and uh, it's deeply paranoid about the West, uh, and it doesn't have a grand plan for for conquering us. I think it's it's plans are much more defensive. So um, on, on that front, like they're deeply afraid of the West, you know, which might have, which might have, I think, um, stimulated this, this invasion of, of Ukraine, if that makes sense. But I'm, I'm with you on, on Russiagate. I'm obviously I've got tens of thousands of words written about this, about, uh, you know, that, that episode. Matt, and did you use the word Iago-esque? Yeah, you did. Uh, I'm going to keep that. I like that. <laughs> You got to know your Shakespeare, but we do. We know our Shakespeare. <laughs> well, of course, of course. You apologized for getting it wrong. Mm -hmm. Where's the apology from the mainstream media, quote unquote, for all the shit that they've gotten wrong over the last decade? Yeah, well, non-existent. And if you go back even further to the WMD episode, not only did nobody apologize for getting that wrong, everybody got promoted. You know, you know, all the people who were the most wrong in that episode, uh, they're all the editors of magazines now, some pretty influential ones. So if you, <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. Um, so, so, you know, and, and I, I don't think it's um, 
I think the media, when when they don't apologize for making mistakes, they just make a tactical error. Like he, audiences, it, trust is the most important thing in media. If you don't have it, uh, you're you're dead. You will you will lose audience share if people don't believe that you're being straight with them. Um, if they don't believe that you have self awareness, they won't listen to you anymore. And we've seen the the national news media in this country has had tremendous problems keeping its uh, audience, uh, particularly with Trump out of the picture. Uh, and I yeah. think you, when you get stuff wrong, you got to cop to it or else, or else, you, you know, the people will, will stop believing what you have to say is true. And, um, we just don't do that, you know, as, as a it, worse than that, we have a, a new habit of making silent edits, right? So if there's a mistake rather than announcing it in a, in a big correction, um, you might just change it in the next version of the online, uh, you know, article take out certain parts, not put a notation at the bottom of the page. Like that stuff's also kind of Orwellian when you think about it, um, making changes and not, not telling people that there used to be another news story here um, that said something different. That's pretty creepy. Uh, and we, we're, we're starting to do that more and more often. You know, a tiny bit of pushback on that though. If sure. You're trying to. Says the New York Times what- uh, columnist where people's heads and hearts are, is that I think we tend, especially people who, I don't I don't want to necessarily say intellectual, but people who have a story to tell, who are looking at things with a kind of broad perspective, you see trends, you get the feeling that things are moving in a certain direction. And your sense has to be, if you're any kind of scientist, your sense has to be that there are going to be some hairs out of place. There's going to be an eyelash behind the contact lens. Things go like this. They don't go like this. That's just the nature of things. And so you see something that's an exception. You see something that's wrong. And in your mind, you figure, okay, not perfect, but still the general story is this. I think you can therefore justify quite a bit. It can even go over 50%, quite a bit that doesn't fit your narrative. And I don't think that it's necessarily wrong to think in terms of narratives in itself. I think, frankly, to an extent, it's a kind of intelligence. If, if all you're going to do is collect butterflies, and Matt, I'm not accusing sure. you of this at all, but if all you're going to do is collect butterflies, you're not an entomologist. And so, for example, we are talking around a few people in terms of these people who get promoted, et cetera, despite being wrong. I happened to have a conversation with one of those people not long ago mm. for reasons that need not detain us, and that person was talking about, you know, what's going on in Ukraine, et cetera. And I can say that that person has a story. That person is perfectly aware of what has gone wrong, where things have not followed the narrative of people like him. But I can't say that I found myself listening to a self-inflated blowhard who doesn't understand how the world works. It's that he sees a trend and I'm just going to leave it there. But in Matt, I completely take your uh, point john john excuse me for interrupting you're being too up too subtle for me maybe you and matt are following and i'm not asking you to name a name i'm, I'm just asking you to add a little bit more detail to uh, what it is that you're trying to get across well these neocons right matt i mean the people mm-hmm. who 20 years ago had a certain story they were promoting oh, about those people. why iraq made sense and america's place in the world i know a lot of those people and i continue to know a lot of those people in in various ways And I can say that I completely understand Matt's critique. I don't 
agree with those people anymore on these you know world issues but i can always see how they can sleep at night and it's because a person has a narrative uh, and, and one has to have a narrative to engage the world intelligently to an extent i i think is that okay that's so, all right. yeah. I'm, I'm i'm with you now david from i'm with you now uh bill crystal i'm with you now john had Pothorts. john Pothorts sucks <laughs> is the title of one of matt's recent columns i'm with you now max boot uh gelatinous mediocrity and so forth and so on you say they've got a story uh they do what, what do you I say Matt? what do you say well okay <laughs> no i actually i mean i understand what john's saying and and, and uh, i think there's even some validity to that but um no i'm i'm the, the son of a news reporter i grew up in in newsrooms around reporters like not around politicians not around ideologues, people right. ideologues right like the, we were my father was not in that in the narrative business uh the people that i grew up around you know reporters uh as as a group were people who when they did a story on the night that, that the story was about to be published they could not sleep because they were afraid they got some little fact in there wrong that was going to ruin their reputations that's that was like a commonality for every person in the journalism business. So mm. getting something huge wrong, like this idea that that Saddam Hussein has, uh, you, you know, weapons of mass destruction just around the corner, you um, trust us, it's right over that hill, you know, uh, and you do trust them and you put it on in the news and it turns out not to be right. Like, that's the kind of thing that that you, you would not be able to live down if you were just purely a reporter. Right. Uh, and I think I understand what you're saying, but the, there's a distinction. And this is what I was talking about, how there's been a drastic change in the way we do business. We are in the narrative business now. We didn't used to be. We were really much more in the business of um, more in the business of saying, here's what we know. You know, like we called all around and this is what this person says and this is what this person says. And this is um, what the official statements are. Uh, here's the information. We checked it. You do what you want with it. You make your own decisions and then we'll come back tomorrow and give you what we got uh, since then. Um, now it's not really like that. Now we're in, you know, what Wesley Lowry calls the moral clarity business which is we're trying to drive audiences in a direction. And um, I, I think we do that more than we used to, much more. What you mean, uh, but Wesley I Yang? Uh, no, no, Wesley Lowry. Oh. Uh, he, he had a, he, had, he, he's, he was sort of, he wrote an article about this whole phenomenon of what we call moral clarity in the journalism business, which is uh, ditching the old, old objectivity model of journalism. Uh, what, what do you call the view from nowhere? objectivity which is just you know the republican says this the democrat says this and here's the news and do what you want with it by the way um, i came to boston in 1972 to go to graduate school and have lived here most uh most of my life since and i remember mike taibbi oh yeah i, I remember reading <laughs> shoe leather reporting and uh you know that kind of old school journalism uh in the newspaper oh, here cool. in boston yeah 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 yeah, no, my dad was, uh, he was very old school. Yeah, <laughs> old school reporter, for sure. Yeah. You, so you were at BU? Uh, well, I taught at BU 91 to 2005. Mm -hmm. I was in graduate school at MIT, 72 
to 76. And I taught at Harvard 82 to 91. So except for the six years between 76 and 82, I've been living in New England. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, so fellow, fellow New Englander. Yeah. yeah. Terrific. Yeah. Lived in Brookline, you know, used to go to take our kids to the all uh, Newton School of Music uh, over there and stuff like that. And read Mike Tight if I want to know what was going on. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Are you living in Providence now or? Yeah. Yeah. I made the move down here. My wife, my late wife, Linda, she passed away uh, 11 years oh, ago. And thank you. I've since remarried. Oh, and by the way, my new wife, Lawan, is a big fan of uh, of Useful Idiots. And she said, is Katie going to be on? Is Katie going to be on? <laughs> I said, no, not this time. <laughs> just just Matt. <laughs> oh, tell her I'm sorry. Yeah, but, no, uh, you needn't apologize. She appreciates you as well. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, that's cool. It's, history has... It's it's always interesting to me to talk to the people who are responsible for these things, but there does come a point when you have to make a, a judgment and hold people accountable. And I hope I'm not implying that I don't believe that. I remember Rumsfeld on TV saying, you know, well, it's, it's only been three weeks. You know, we're, we're going to find them. Like you're saying that they're over the hill and then they would never, they're never ever over any hill. And no, no one was held to account once. This is my name dropping day. I really don't do much but sit in my house. But I remember I was on some show where I was in a green room with Petraeus. And I asked him, because what else? The, the person next to me was, there was a Miss America, and I didn't have anything to say to her. And then on the other side of me, it was green him. rooms are funny. Man. <laughs> it was. So I just figured I'm going to talk to him. And I asked him very gently, how do you, like, how do you justify these terrible things that have happened? It, it's all gone wrong. You know, you've got the it, you, you've got the Sunnis, you know, out of power and angry like this isn't the way it was supposed to go. And I wasn't accusatory, but I just said, how do you feel about this? And I don't think that this was a man in conflict. I, I, I think that he just was living life day to day and was always hoping that things would get better. But, yeah, hmm. after a while, you have to you have to make a judgment. I completely understand that. I have a hard time ever thinking of people as evil. And I don't think that's what you're saying, but I'm always interested in how people pull these things. Call me Hannah Arendt or something. But yeah, a judgment has to be made eventually. Yeah, and and uh, that makes sense. I mean, and, and I I do draw a distinction between people who, who are making policy decisions and people who are reporting. Um, I, I didn't agree with the, the idea that uh, Rumsfeld's idea that we could you know, with one bold move, sort of build an Arab Switzerland and and change, reform the Middle East that way. And um, I didn't agree with the benevolent uh, hegemony concept that the you know that the Bill Crystal and Robert Kagan were pushing even before Bush got elected. This idea that we can't have countries that aren't sort of under our effective control out there. So yeah, got to get rid of the rogue states, North Korea and. Um, Iraq and uh, Iran, um, but you know that they, they. I think they honestly believe those things, um, and I think the the Bush people probably did really think that we were going to be welcomed as liberators, and they I thought it was they, they yeah. thought it was going to work some other way. Uh, to me, that's that's crazy. But you know, uh, and this this gets back to my to, to what to the idea about what happened in Russia is that I, you know, I had a lot of experience knowing expats who lived abroad, who made policy decisions and a lot of the diplomats. And I was so unimpressed when I lived over there, the, 
so many of the people who were um, in positions of influence in the embassy were people who didn't speak Russian, had no sense of, of the country whatsoever, and really thought of what they were doing as a big game of risk. Um, and it, it wasn't real for them because they just they they didn't have enough contact with the local, local population, which I think is what happened in the Middle East with the United States. We just expected that, you know, Iraqis would behave as, you know, uh, like Americans or that there wasn't any wouldn't be any difference between Sunnis and Shiites and that sort of thing. And you can't be like that. You got to know, um, you know, what what the local populations are thinking. So, you know, yeah. There was a language problem back then too. Not enough people spoke the languages. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. Pashto was impossible to learn. Um, that's another thing. Um, mm-hmm. Not literally, but it's a really tough one. Yeah, I, I remember. I wrote something about that at one point. Just you how, don't know the people. You can't talk Matt, to them. Yeah, Matt. Matt, how did you come to know Russian? So when I when I was um, much younger, uh, I wanted to be a um, a novelist. All my favorite writers were Russians. Uh, they write so, the best novels. Yeah. <laughs> they write great novels. I was <laughs> uh, a big fan of the really funny Russian writers like Nikolai Gogol. Uh, and so I, I wanted to learn Russian just so I could read those books uh, in, wow. in the na- native language. So that's I went there in 1989, 1990, at the end of the Soviet Union. I studied university there. Um, and then I, when I graduated, I just started working as a, um, as a stringer. Uh, we sort of went into the family business of journalism because I didn't have any other way to support mm-hmm. myself. So uh, I just learned, you know, kind of on this basically, you know, on the street, just living there. But it's a beautiful language, Russia, Russian. It's a fabulously, the Slavic languages are some of probably the 100 or 200 hardest languages in the world. They are tough. I mean, Pashto's hard, but Russian is is harder. And yeah, it's it's gratifying when you crack it, but it, it to speak it, you've got to live in it without without a doubt. Yeah. Okay, I I know my Pasternak a little bit. Uh, I've read some Chekhov. I of course know my Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and whatnot. But in the last fifty years, if you were going to pick up a Russian novel, what would you? In the recommend? last fifty years. Yeah. Well, I was a big fan of. Um, Let's see, Vladimir Vinovich. Uh, I've he, never read a modern one. <laughs> I never thought about uh, yeah. that. There was a great, there's a great, um, he didn't write novels really. He wrote short stories that were kind of like his autobiographical fiction. There was a guy named Sergei Devlatov, uh, whose daughter lives in New York, actually, Katya Devlatova. He's a, a brilliant writer, He, uh, but he ended up in the United States. Um Let's see. Uh, of of the Soviet writers, uh, Zoshinka, but he was far farther back. What about post? Um, oh. what, what about post nineteen ninety one? You know, kind of uh, apocalyptic. Uh, things have fallen apart. Where are we now? What's the meaning like, of life? Like Victor Pelevin is probably the big name. Ah, yeah. um, I I didn't. You know, I I, I was pretty old fashioned. I I. I even with a uh, with even with American and, and English language novels, I I tend tended towards always like nineteenth century, early early twentieth century books. Um, I don't know. There must be some kind of character flaw, but <laughs> but yeah. So I'm I'm not I'm not as uh, well versed in the in in the modern books. Yeah. Well, our creative director uh, 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 Nikita Petrov, who works with the podcast and is a terrific guy. 
uh, has been uh, telling me about Pelevin, Victor Pelevin. He sent me a few of the books, actually, which I've been perusing. Mm. So they're very funny. Some... I mean, his books are funny. Yeah, he's they're funny. Good... And... Mm-hmm. Okay. Once I was in a hotel room in Helsinki, and there was a Devlatov novel on next to the TV for some reason. I guess somebody had left in it. In English? No, it was in Russian. And oh, I, then, yeah. I just left it because I didn't know who he was. So I should have looked at it, Matt. Huh? Oh yeah, he he's. I remember hilarious, that hilarious, incredibly funny writer. Uh, if you're going to start that, with yeah. someone, then start with a story called the suitcase, uh, mm. which is really really funny stuff. I mean, the Russians have a lot of real incredibly funny writers. The, right. the the story that that actually got me into Russian literature would say was by a writer named. Saltykov Shedrin, um, and he wrote a story called How a Mujik Fed Two Officials. And it's about how these two bureaucrats in back in the Tsarist times, they wake up in a desert island and they're surrounded by everywhere by food, fish, uh, plants, but they don't know how to do anything for themselves, can't cook. And (laughs) they they, they end up like nearly starving to death until it suddenly occurs to them, what would we do at home? Oh, we'd call a servant. Sure. Uh, and so they go looking in the island for a servant. They find one sleeping. They call him lazy. They wake him up and he like goes and catches fish and cooks for them and everything. This is very funny stuff. <laughs> they they uh, they were really, really masters at like satirical, like and satirical black humor, which I was really attracted to as a kid. <laughs> okay, OK, now here's the big question mm-hmm. uh, to a veteran of the MBA. Uh, and also a kid who grew up in greater Boston. Celtics or Nets? Celtics or Nets? Uh, the Celtics are great right now, but um, I'd be afraid to play them in the, in the Nets in the playoffs. Uh, you know, when, they were, when, when they have both KD and, and, uh, and Kyrie, they scare me. But uh, I don't know. How do you how do you go on that, Glenn? Uh, I'm putting my money on the Celtics. Uh, I don't know if Ben Simmons is going to play again this season. Uh, and uh, hopefully some of the playoff games will be in uh, in New York so that Kyrie doesn't come right. on the court. That's, right. this, this dude scored 60 points the other night. man. <laughs> I know. I know. I know. But I, I'm all about these seeds. I love the, the, the Time Lord's fantastic. I think he's 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 amazing. So uh, they, they got a they got a great defense. Definitely. John, got anything? I know nothing. My <laughs> ignorance of sports is awesome. I know nothing. Nothing to be I know that you of. say Celtics and not Celtics, but that's that's <laughs> it's all good, bro. It's all good. It's all good. And yeah. you seem to be proud of it, and you know that no, is- I'm not proud of it. It's it's depressing. It makes it hard to talk to guys sometimes because it's <laughs> it's the lingua franca. I know nothing. It's embarrassing. Just, There's actually right. a great a great sports story that that, that relates to that. So, uh, Glenn, do you remember that time that Bo Jackson ran over Brian Bosworth? No, no. Okay, all right. Well, he was he was the great running back in the yeah. In Bo the 80s. I was going to ask yeah, what sport yeah. this was. Okay. Uh, and he got asked after the game. Bo Jackson uh, got asked about the the, the play, and uh, Bo said Brian Bosworth got nothing to be ashamed of, uh, which I thought was, <laughs> it was like the ultimately insulting quote. But uh, but John, you got nothing to be ashamed. You got of. nothing to be ashamed of. John. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> this has been the Glenn Show episode with John McWhorter and Matt Taibbi. Wonderful talk to you, Matt. We'll have to do it again sometime. Glenn, John, thanks Definitely. so much. Take care now. Thank you, man. Okay. Take care.